0: Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington. Morning worship at 11 and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.briamshoreline.org. We just have sung together a song about preparing our hearts uh, to receive God's word as we serve him and as perfectly fitting as we open our Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 5. I know you've been reading along with us throughout the week and uh, Nehemiah chapter 5 I ask you to read before the service this week and next week will be our missions conference but the week after that if you take time to read Nehemiah chapter 6 and we will be continuing our study in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 5 A very important part, once again, there are some passages of Scripture that just kind of preach themselves, you know. It's just so easy to preach out of, and there's so many lessons that um, Nehemiah chapter 5 has for us that we can learn for our lives today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we do pray as we have just sung together that our hearts will be open to your word and that we are willing to have you speak to us through your word today. We never take for granted the freedom we have to come to open your word, to preach it, to teach it. Uh, and Lord, for this we are grateful today. And so we give this time to you now as an act of worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 5 is a very, uh, sort of another crisis point in this story as we have been uh, following the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, as Nehemiah has come back from Persia, and he has come back with the king's permission to rebuild the walls because the, the, the building project to rebuild the temple has come to a stop because they are at the mercy of their surrounding enemies because the walls are broken down. And so, as we remember in chapter 1, his brothers came and reported to him when he asked, how is it going in Uh, Jerusalem and Judea, and they told him how things had come to a stop, what a desperate uh, state they were in. He received permission from the king when he boldly went to him finally, when he was given the opportunity and asked for permission to go. The king sends him back with authority, with resources, with protection. He goes back and he uh, surveys the situation. He gathers the people and they begin to rebuild the walls. Last week we looked at the opposition they faced. From the surrounding people around them, on all sides, uh, from Philistia to uh, to, S- to Syria, to Lebanon, to the, to the east, to Oman, uh, to the south, Arabia, from the opposition from all sides that they are receiving, to, to against this building, harassments, threats, intimidation, fear, to stop this building project. As we ended chapter four, we saw that the, the project continued, and Nehemiah continued to lead the people with this project. <clears throat> Chapter 5 today. And let's just read together, first of all. I'd like to ask my lovely assistant, Gary Hansen to go get me a glass of water. <laughs> you must have drank the water that I had up here eight weeks ago, you know. It's <laughs> Thank you, Gary. Um, I don't usually have to have that, but I can use a little water today. Chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 1. Now the men... And their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen. And though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. <clears throat> there's a, um, <clears throat> there's a, a famous quotation from a comic strip, uh, Pogo. That uh, goes like this. (coughs) Excuse me. Come on, Gary, hurry up. (coughs) We have met the enemy and we is us. Okay, I'm not sure if that's proper English or not. Trainer, are you here? I'm not sure if that's proper or not. Uh, We have met the enemy (coughs) and we is us. How far is that water? (coughs) He does know where that fountain is. Here he comes. (coughs) This. Door's locked. No, door's not locked. All right, let's give Gary a hand. for. uh... (laughs) Thank you, Gary. I'll do the same for you someday. All right, there we go. Good. That's all we needed. What's in this water anyway? We have met the enemy and we is us. We're not sure if that really originated with the author of that comic strip, but I think you see what's going on here. They have now faced a situation where the problems are from within. We see here um, three groups of people who are having trouble. And you notice that it says their wives also were part of this outcry. Now, the men have come to the city to rebuild the walls. And while they are there, they've been asked to stay there to protect the walls We saw last week. This is an agricultural community. So that means that uh, the farming aspect of their lives is suffering. And no one is there to bring in the crops, to do the work, because most of them are at the city. <coughs> That's why I didn't want to cough. Sorry about that. Uh, most of them are at the city uh, doing the work. And so finally it hits a crisis point and they come and there's an outcry. And group number one says this in verse two. We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat, we must have grain. This particular group probably are not land owners. They are probably workers and tenants. And they have no option. They have to work to, to get grain to eat. They're working on the building and they have no, they have no way to, to get their grain to eat. And so they're starving. And so group number one says, you know, we are desperate. We, we have nothing to eat. And we can't work. We can't bring in the crops. We have nothing to eat. Group number two, in verse three, others, you notice, others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. This particular group are probably landowners, obviously, because they are able to sell or mortgage their homes, take out a, you know, a line of credit against their property, and they're able to get this money. But as they're doing so, their homes are in jeopardy, and they're probably in jeopardy of foreclosure. They have had to borrow money to get food because of the crisis, the financial crisis. Third, the last group, And verse four says, still others were saying we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And we're the same flesh and blood as our countrymen. Our sons are as good as theirs. Yeah, we uh, subject our sons and daughters basically to slavery or to indentured servanthood, we might say. The third group, their concern is they have to pay the king's tax because the Persian king levied a fairly heavy tax on them. And so we have these three groups who all of a sudden are crying out against Nehemiah and saying, we're in a financial crisis. We're going to be foreclosed upon. We can't get food. We have to pay the tax. And, 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 and we have no way. We're, and we're actually selling our sons and daughters as the word slave is used there. But again, it's the idea of what we, we, were, we know in English language of an indentured servant, where you, you could sell yourself. You could sell one of your children to serve somebody until you could pay off the debt. However, if you couldn't pay off the debt, then you couldn't get your child or yourself back from servanthood or from slavery. So this is the crisis. But what makes it worse is that as we read this passage, we're going to find out in verse 6, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles And the officials, and I told them, you are exacting usury or interest from your own countrymen. And I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So what's happening in this situation is this mortgaging, this borrowing of money, and in fact, even selling their children as indentured servants is going on within their own community. There are fellow Jews, and he he mentions here the nobles. So this would be of the class who were uh, wealthy enough to survive this financial crisis, who were in a situation where they could lend money because they were okay and they could buy your sons and daughters as servants, and they were fellow Jews. This is why we have, we've, we've said here that, that what we have here is a struggle that is internal. We have seen the external struggle of the outside enemies, uh, those uh, non-Jews who were trying to stop this work, who did not want them there. But now we see an internal. We have met the enemy, and we is us. That's, what it, that's what's going on here. And this is what, this is what Nehemiah is so angry about is that the work of God is about to come apart, is about to stop, is about to collapse and disintegrate because of them, because of fellow Jews. When when they have sacrificed so much, they have come so far, they have built so high, and they are about to finish this project. They have withstood the attacks from without of Satan's uh, attacks through the enemies, through intimidation, through fear, and through all the other things, and, and, and the threat of physical force. But now... It's all going to come to a stop because of the greed and the abuse that is happening within the community itself. It is interesting, as I thought about this, and I think about the ministries that I'm aware of, and uh, Christian leaders, and looking out you know, over the years, and just the history of the church, and so forth. It is interesting, isn't it? Stop and think about it. How often do ministries... Come to an end, or get destroyed by external forces. Generally, what we find, Amira, you know, mentioned she's been, she's served in China, uh, teaching English there. But also, but she did that as a tent maker ministry to get into China to do ministry. That's where her heart is. What do you got there, Gary? Wow! Come on in. Room service. Thank you. What we got here? Tea? All right. Thank you. I'll have a double tall latte, too, when you're done with that. (laughs) Boy, he's good, isn't he? You're looking for a job or something. Okay. So often, the external pressure, the the threats, the uh, intimidations, uh, even physical uh, harm, what happens to the church in these situations? Oftentimes, it what? It grows. It prospers. Look at look at Christianity in China. Look at how many years of the intense persecution. And yet, there are those who say there are more Christians in China today than there are in America. I don't know that that's true or not, but that's very possible. That there are more Christians in, in, in what used to be communist China than there are in the United States today. It's generally not the outside threats, physical intimidation, or even... Harm that destroys the church. Most ministries are destroyed from within. Think about it. It's true. Most ministries that are destroyed or collapse are from internal moral failure, internal fighting, squabbling, territory, power you name it, and greed. And this is exactly what's happening here. This is the this is the biggest threat these people are going to face. Because it's happening within their own community, among their own nobles and leaders of all people who should be leading, who should be helping. And Nehemiah looks at this situation and he's angry. He's very angry. He's mad. He's mad at these leaders. He's mad at the situation. He's upset. He takes time. He ponders it. And then he accuses them. And he told them, he said, listen, you are asking for interest from your own countrymen. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament law, if you don't mind for a minute, go back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, we're in the Old Testament. If you go back to Leviticus, chapter 25, you will find the uh, you will find the regulations within the nation of Israel when it comes to Usury to selling your children and to helping one another. In Leviticus chapter 25, this whole, this whole chapter uh, has to do with the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. The key to it is verse 23. This is the key. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine And you are but aliens and my tenants. There's a principle in Israel. Now, this you know, we believe in the dispensational view of Scripture, and we believe today we are in the in the age of the church, the body of Christ, the dispensation of grace. We are not under law, we are not living under Mosaic law. And so if someone goes to this passage and, and tries to build a case pro or con private property, that's not this was written to Israel in the promised land because they were given physical blessings. And they were given promises by God that were specific to them in the Old Testament. And the promise was, if you obey me, I will bless you. All you have to do is obey and you will not have drought. You will not have disease and sickness. You will not be overrun by your enemies. All you have to do is obey me and follow my commands and I will bless you. And because of that, God says, remember, the land is mine. I gave it to you. You really don't own it. You you can buy and sell, but the land belongs to me. And because of that, there were stipulations on the Sabbath year, which is the first part, verses one through seven, and then this amazing thing called the year of jubilee, where in the year of jubilee, in that fiftieth year, that all the land, if, if I sold my land to Gary, and and I and and, and I was making and Gary's making payments. Uh, you know, uh, to me. But on the 50th year, it returns. It goes back. If I sold myself as a, as a, as a servant to Alice, and I said, I'm going to come and work in your garden for whatever, because I, cause I, I have to borrow money. Uh, but you know what? When that comes time, she has to give me my freedom. It makes no difference. It all goes back. All the debts were canceled. All the mortgages were canceled. Everything went back to, to baseline because it all belonged to God. And they were to depend on God. And if you read this passage carefully, you will find out. So you see that in verse 28. You notice right at the end there. It will be returned in the Jubilee, and he can go back to his property. And then you'll read about the person that sells themselves. But if if you notice here, he also says, let's read verse 35. If one of your countrymen becomes poor, if one of your fellow Jews become poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident, so he can continue to live among you do not take interest of any kind from him you must fear God so your countrymen may continue to live among you you must not lend money at interest or sell him food at a profit I am the Lord your God you could lend money to a fellow Jew you could take surety you could take a pledge for example if I did lend my, um, if, if Ellen lent me money, my guarantee that I'm going to pay her back would be my coat. For example, my cloak. And I would give her my cloak as my guarantee. Ellen, I'm going to pay you this money back. Here's, here's my guarantee. Here's my insurance. However, if I'm poor, and this is the only coat that I own, at nighttime, she had to give it back to me to sleep in. And in the morning, I would give it back to Ellen. Because the poor had no other recourse. And this was all built into the the Jewish law to help one another. They were not to charge interest. They were to treat each other well. And you see here, I think the the heart of this is, if your countryman becomes poor, help him. As you would anybody else. You know, when 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 they harvested their fields, they had to leave the corners unharvested so anybody could come and glean themselves. Remember the story of Ruth the Moabitess who was doing that. It's exactly what she was doing. So this is the heart of the, of, the, of, the, of the understanding that Jews were to live about. Chapter 5 of Nehemiah. Nehemiah charges them and says, you're lending at interest to your own countrymen. You know that's against the law. Selling yourself as a hired servant was not against the law. Jews could do this within the Jewish community. They could sell themselves as servants. One of the sad things about this is when... Uh, in verse 5, where it says, Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. The word enslaved there uh, in the story of Esther has sexual overtones. And uh, in many of the commentators, the Hebrew experts, suggest this means that maybe these females were being sold to gratify the sensual lusts of the owners, maybe a forced marriage type. That's how bad it was within the community itself of Israel. This is what's going on the building has stopped. Everything's about to fall apart because of this abuse and this greed that's going on within the community. Nehemiah confronts it. Nehemiah ponders it, thinks about it, and you notice what he does. He calls an assembly. He calls them together in in the public. A large meeting. And look how he deals with this. Verse 8 we read, he says, As far as possible we have bought our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. So here we've been spending money Buying back our fellow Jews from Gentiles, Jews who had sold themselves into servitude, And now here you're doing it to yourselves. He said, what are we thinking? What are you doing? Give back to them immediately in verse 11. He says, stop taking interest. Stop doing this. Stop taking interest from fellow Jews. Give back their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses. And also the usury you are charging them. The hundredth part of the money. The idea there, the hundredth. If you work it out, it seems to be 1% a month, which would be about 12% interest that they are charging. Give it back. Grain, new wine, and oil. What Nehemiah does here is sort of mandates an emergency year of jubilee. There's no indication this is the year of jubilee. In fact, I can't find anywhere in the Old Testament that talks about them actually practicing the year of jubilee. But in this particular case, it's like mandated a year of jubilee. Everything goes back. Quit taking interest. Give them back their fields. Give them back their land. Get everything back to ground zero, to base, to base zero, so we can get going on this building project and finish this project. We have met the enemy. It's us. And let's deal with it. And he calls them to account. Verse 9, I continued, what you are doing is not right. He's talking to the nobles here. He's talking to those who have been taking advantage of this situation. Some of them are doing it within the, within the constraints of the Jewish law. But what Nehemiah is dealing with here is the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Technically, he has no right to ask for this year of Jubilee response. But he is asking them to respond in the spirit of the law, of caring for one another and caring for God's work. And he says, give it back. You're not doing the right thing. Shouldn't you walk? In verse 9, in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. Here the enemies tried to stop the work and they couldn't. And now they're sitting back and watching us fight and squabble from within and bringing disgrace upon God's name. And then look what he says, verse 10. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. He doesn't say they're, they're charging interest. But he admits that his family, Nehemiah's family, may have been part of the nobles. And he may have even been drawn. Maybe he didn't even know. He's busy doing the project. Maybe someone's managing his finances. Which would not be unusual. And he finds out his own family and his own finances are involved in this. And he admits this. Don't you like leaders like that? Don't you like leaders who admit when they make a mistake and just tell it like it is? And Nehemiah stands up And he says, we've been doing this too. Let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses. And also the usury you are charging, the hundredth part of the money, grain, wine, oil. Look at their response. This is unusual. I mean, they have to respond now. And the people respond, we will give it back. And they said, we will not demand anything more from them We will do as you say. This is a real watershed, friends. The people could have responded any number of ways. But these nobles and leaders are convicted. Nehemiah's own honesty and integrity as he admits what his family is doing. He says, we have to stop this. And they say, we will stop. But Nehemiah is a very wise man. Uh, Those of you that are in kind of a leadership role, Nehemiah is a good book to study. A lot of good principles for leadership here. He's a very wise man, but he is not going to allow any room for maneuvering when the meeting is over. To say, well, yeah, we said this, but you know, the law really says, so we really don't, you know, Nehemiah is out of line. He leaves no room for maneuvering. He summons the priests and the nobles and the officials and to take an oath to do what they had promised in front of the priests and publicly to take an oath in front of the religious system, if you will, the Jewish people to say, we are going to stick by what we said. We are going to stop this. He shook out his garment, which was a way of, of doing that in those days to indicate uh, your your commitment to it. And he says, in this way, may God shake out of his house and possession. Every man does not keep his promise. So may such a man be shaken out and empty. And the whole assembly said what? Hallelujah. Amen. Come on, hallelujah. Amen. There only a couple times in Scripture where you see this, and when they say amen, that simply means, so be it. We agree. That's when you say amen, when you pray. That's what you're saying. I agree, God. Let it be. And, he, and they praise the Lord, and the people did as they promised. And the building project moves on. And if you come back the week after Missions Conference, we're going to find the building project is going to be finished. Gary's going to be preaching that week, right? Right, Gary? And we're going to get there. And you're on your own for hot water and tea. So I won't be here to help you out, okay? The building project goes on. You read the rest of this chapter and you'll find out there's some detail here about Nehemiah's table. You know, you think you entertain. Look what he says here. Uh, he says that he, in verse 15, the earlier governors, they placed a heavy burden on the people and they and took 40 shekels of silver. He had a right to do that as governor, but he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't take taxation. He would not do that. And then, look at his table in verse 17. 150 Jews and officials ate at my table. 150. When was the last time you entertained 150 people? And they came from the surrounding nation. Each day, one ox, six sheep, some poultry were prepared for me. Every 10 days of supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor. What Nehemiah is saying here, it was, it was expected of governors and nobles to entertain like that. You see it in the Old Testament. That's, just, that's what they had to do. Nehemiah really needed to do this. He needed to feed 150 people all the time at his, at his courthouse table. And he says, and I financed it myself out of my own resources. I was entitled to take taxes from the people. I've asked the rest of them not to be burdensome. I'm not going to take the tax I'm entitled to. And I'm going to pay for this myself. And Nehemiah set the example of going there himself and leading by example to the people of God. And the project moves on. And we get through this crisis, this internal crisis where this ministry, this program, would have fallen apart with less of a leader turning their hearts to God than what God had to do. His qualities of leadership, he displays a disarming candor in admitting his own involvement. His proposals were costly, but they were simple. And everybody could follow them. And he left no room for maneuvering. And finally, he was a willing leader to go further than what he asked of the people. He was willing to go further and, and sacrifice more than what he asked of the people to sacrifice. You know, it's election coming up. Wouldn't you love to have those kind of leaders? Wouldn't you love to have those kind of leaders? Well, listen, there are so many applications here that I just want to mention a few thoughts to you today. Most of the defeats in God's work today, I believe, this is my opinion, I haven't done any research or anything, Comes from within. It happened early in the story of the Christian church and the Corinthian church. Remember what Paul writes back in 1 Corinthians, one of his earliest epistles, chapter 1, and what's he say right off the bat? I hear there are divisions among you. I hear you. I, I've left. He spent 18 months there training that church and training the leaders and building it up. He leaves and he says, writes back and he says, I, I, As soon as I left, I found out you've divided up in the group. Some of you say, We're, we're Apollos. Some say we're from Peter. Some say we're from Paul. Some say we're from Jesus. And you've divided up into groups. And you're polarizing. And Paul says, who is Paul? Who is Peter? Who are Apollos? We're servants. It's God who's the one that we are to worship. The Lord Jesus Christ is our Master. We might plant, someone else might water, but God gives the increase. You don't take the in- if it just so happens that your group sees the fruition and the growth, you don't take credit for it because that group over there planted the seed, and somebody else watered it. This happens all the time. It happened in your life. Many of you here that have come to know Christ as Savior, maybe as adults you look back, or as young people and you look back over your lives and you see where the word was planted, where the word was watered, and someone else. Help bring fruition. But God is the one who saved you. God brought salvation. This happened early in the church. In Galatians. In chapter 5. In verse 15. Another early epistle. Paul says this. This is is amazing. Written to the churches at Galatia. Early on in the gospel story. And he says this. Galatians 5.15. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, you will be destroyed by each other. If you keep eating up each other, these people in Galatia, they were fighting in their churches. There was doctrinal discord. It says if you keep biting and eating and fighting, watch out, you're going to destroy each other. Not that you're going to be destroyed from without, but you're going to be destroyed from within because you are not keeping unity within the body. You are not seeking what God wants for you to have. Here's some lessons for us real quickly as you take home with you today. Nehemiah is so full of practical application lessons. Like I said, it preaches itself. First one I want you to take home with you is chapter 5 and verse 6 and 7. Nehemiah hears this outcry. He hears these charges. What's it says? I was very angry. And if this were me and possibly you, it might say, I was very angry and I went and I yelled at them. What's it say? I was very angry and I, what? Pondered them. Uh, it literally in the, he, in, the he, in the Hebrew, is, I took counsel with myself. And this is a, a little bit of advice for me and for you today. There is a good chance that maybe this week you might get upset or angry with someone, with an email, with a statement, with a friend, with a relative, with a neighbor, or a co-worker. And lesson number one is, let's be like Nehemiah, And let's think before we speak. Huh? How many times have you regretted that you took time and thought about your response before you gave it? How many times have you regretted opening your mouth or writing off that email or posting that social network statement or that tweet and then thought about it and said, I should have given a little more thought to that because now it's out there. Lesson number one, it might just happen this week that this might happen in your life. I just want to remind you to be like Nehemiah and take some time to, to counsel with yourself and God before you respond. You can still respond in anger. You can still respond uh, uh, you know, to an angry situation. You can still respond with firmness. You can still uh, hold the line and do what's right. But it never hurts to think about it a few minutes Before you respond, okay? Secondly, a lesson for us today we are a brotherhood. The heart of this passage here is that Nehemiah accuses them of doing this to their own brothers. The Jewish community was a brotherhood. Now, today, we understand that when the word brothers is used here, as it is in the epistles, Twenty-two times in the Thessalonian Epistles, Paul uses the term brothers. Twenty-two times in those short epistles. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those these things, about those who have fallen asleep, so that you sorrow but not as others. We don't want you to be brothers. Greet the brothers. Brothers, I ask you this. Read Paul's letters. Read the Thessalonian epistles and you'll see how many times he uses the term brothers and brotherhood. We are, the church is a brotherhood. Now, we understand today when I say that, just as they understood in those days, that's also a sisterhood. Okay? It is not just men. That's why some of the newer translations choose to use brothers and sisters because everybody knew when Paul wrote this. Everybody knew when Nehemiah wrote this. He was talking to the community it's just a little cumbersome for me to say we're a brotherhood and sisterhood. Okay? So, you know what I mean when I say that, right? We are a brotherhood. We are a family. God's people today, just like the Jews in this situation, God's people are always, His called out assembly, His called out people, or the church are always a family. We are a brotherhood. And we should treat each other that way. We should help one another. Romans chapter 12 and verse 13. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Hebrews thirteen sixteen. Do not forget to do good and to share with others for with, with such sacrifices God is pleased. Paul says in Galatians, do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. We are a brotherhood. And we are a international brotherhood. Myra has come today and shared the ministry in Cambodia. These are our brothers and sisters. The missionaries that will be representing the fields that will come to us this next week. We are a brotherhood. We help one another. You remember as we studied Acts together. And we saw that... that that, that Paul collected money from the various churches to take to the poor saints in Judea, people they had never met. But they were doing this because they were brothers and sisters in Christ. And brothers and sisters should treat each other like family. This is why you know, God has blessed us in America. God has blessed us with resources. That we were able to help overseas. This, this Team Cambodia concept where they are trying to raise 80% of their funds from America and 20% from the Philippines. It, it, you know, it is hard. We support works all over this world that God has called us to partner with. Because we are brothers. And we should be helping one another. We are a brotherhood. And finally... A lesson you can take home with you. The unity of God's people. What's really at stake here is God's name. Do you catch that what Nehemiah said? He said, we are becoming a disgrace to our God to these surrounding people because they are watching us take advantage and cheat each other and squabble and fight. And it brings disgrace upon God's name. In First Corinthians chapter 6, And Paul says this, If any of you have a dispute with another, dare you take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know the saints will judge the world? It is amazing. This is the whole sermon itself. I'm not prepared to preach on this today. If you're to judge the world, don't you know you will also judge angels? I don't know what that means. How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge disputes between believers, but instead one brother goes to law against another? And in this, in front of unbelievers. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians, look at settle things, get along, come to some understanding. You're even going out in this new Christian work in this small city of Corinth before unbelievers and and showing you cannot get along. It's squabbles in between already in this church. Lawsuits and disputes within this church already. Paul says, don't you realize that God's name is at stake here? Work these out. Live in unity. Be a family. Be a brotherhood. As much as you have opportunity, do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. And then Paul says this. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And I want to tell you, friends, there are times where, where sometimes we have to we have to take we have to take what is not best for us for the sake of the unity of God's work. Now I'll be careful! I know that there are limitations. I understand that. But these nobles who had a right, a legal right, even under Jewish law, to those people who had sold themselves into servanthood—read it in Leviticus. Give it back. It's the spirit of Take the loss and give it back. Nehemiah had a right to collect taxes, to provide this food for these huge banquets. Nehemiah didn't do it. Because God's work was more important. And so I tell you today, friends, sometimes it even means taking a loss on our part for the sake of God's work. Sometimes it means... Not taking offense so easily. As Pastor Schutz used to remind us, it can be as big a sin to take offense as give offense. Why are we so easily offended? Isn't God's work more important than me or than you? The ministry to our children and young people it's so bigger than, than me or you. Sometimes we're offended. Sometimes our feelings get hurt. Sometimes we don't get along. And sometimes we have a right to be hurt. And right not to get But listen, friends. Let's be like Nehemiah. Let's not let the enemy destroy God's work from within. We need to build. Work together. We are a brotherhood. Every one of us has our part to play. This is a good story. They solved it. They took a loss. They gave in. They went ahead. And they're going to finish the wall of Jerusalem. Let's close our service. Sing the song you've chosen for us today. As we sing these songs, come on up. As we sing these songs, let's remember to look at the words, to think about the words, and to mean the words to these songs that we sing together. Uh, Bob just brought me to know we've raised uh, our pledges, $56,700, $690 so far of our pledges toward our goal for our mission project. So thank you so much. Continue to pray about that. Support God's ministry around the world as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. After the service, I'm going to ask Myra to come out with, uh, with me and Teresa out to the North X. You come and greet her. We do have some uh, flyers. She has some folders on the two different tables back there, a prayer card. And I want to encourage you, if you can come tonight, come and join us tonight. The encouragement to Myra. She's been blessed by being here with us. She was excited on Wednesday nights to be part of such a vibrant uh, family of God. And uh, she wants to share tonight. So if you can come out tonight, come and join us. You will be blessed uh, for having learned more about this work in Cambodia. Heavenly Father, we come to you today in humbleness. And in this quiet moment, God, and ask Your uh, presence with us, Your Holy Spirit, Lord. If there be one here today who is harboring uh, disunity in their heart toward another, that Lord, they would seek to find unity. And Lord, we would we would be even willing uh, uh, to give in for the sake of Your ministry, that Your work would go forth. Lord, it's just part of our human nature. We are your family. We have our faults. We have our pluses and minuses. And in living together, as we know in our own families, that sometimes it's not always easy to get along. But Lord, we are a family. And we love one another. And we love your work. And we pray that like Nehemiah, we will have the courage and the insight and the wisdom to build your work. Not only here on this corner, but to build around the world in this great task of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing men, women, boys and girls come to Him and to grow in their understanding of the grace of God. To that end, we give you this day, we give you our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.